You're listening to a sermon from New City Fellowship in Manassas, Virginia. New City Fellowship is a diverse community that proclaims the gospel and makes disciples for the glory of God and the renewal of our city. For more information, visit newcityfellowship.net. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Diego. Good morning, everyone. If this is your first time here, we're, we're really glad and thankful that you've joined us this morning. Uh, we've got a table in, in the back corner of this room. We used to have it out in the hallway, but we have it in this room. So you can't slip by us. You have to stop at the table uh, if you're a guest. We would love to meet you. We'd love to just give you something and tell you a little bit uh, about the church and how you can further connect here. Let me tell you a little bit about where we're going to be for the next few weeks in the Bible. So it's, it's always our customary uh, practice at New City to preach through books of the Bible, and then sometimes we'll take sections of books of the Bible to focus on them in particular. Last week, we wrapped up sort of the last historical book of the Old Testament. So Nehemiah closes out. Uh, really, there's kind of silence on the world scene as far as God's activity in communicating to the world for several hundred years. Uh, and then uh, this kind of uh, wild-looking guy named John the Baptist steps on the scene as sort of God's first announcement uh, uh, of, of, of his workings, of his actings in the world. And um, what I wanted to focus on during this sort of season of Advent, so the, the word Advent means uh, the arrival uh, or the coming of Jesus. It, it focuses on his entry into the world. I wanted to focus on how John's gospel in particular introduces us to Jesus. I want to focus on uh, just a few sections in here over the next few weeks as we get ready for uh, Christmas together on the kinds of things that capture John the Apostle's attention uh, as he thinks about uh, Jesus's arrival into the world. And so with that, let me just invite you to pray with me. Let me uh, also encourage you to leave your Bibles open as we'll be looking closely at this passage together. Uh, But before we do that, let's, let's pray and invite God to speak to us. Lord, Would you indeed speak to your people through your word this morning? I know a couple things going on in lives around this room um, and could try to say some word of encouragement to the the various things going on. Lord, you know every single... um, And you don't just know it theoretically. The incarnation, the advent of Jesus as a human being in this world means that you've actually shared in the experiences in this room. So we don't have a a high priest, like Hebrews says, that's unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but but you have become like us, tempted in every way. And so, Lord, from your knowledge of all the different circumstances that are in this room, would you now, through your word, by your Holy Spirit, speak to all of it? Lord, I'm especially captured by that last phrase, that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Some people might find themselves in a a dark place this morning. Would they find great encouragement that in you is light? And when we experience that light that you offer, we experience true, abundant life. God, give life. Breathe life over your people this morning, we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let me just give you a second to ponder this question. 
What's the most important introduction you have ever received? Like you were introduced to someone and that introduction was just monumental for your life. What's the most important introduction that you have ever received? I can share with you mine. It was monumental for where the rest of my life went. I was 20 years old. I had just moved back to Manassas. I had somewhat recently come out of a pretty intense, and I was at another chin experience. Uh, I needed a job. I was trying to find it, finish Bible college, and I was at another church in the area. And the program that I was involved in that I actually met Jesus in was doing a presentation that morning at that church. And so they were just telling about the ministry and uh, what kinds of work they did and things like that. And at the end, because of the relationship I had at the director, he knew that I was looking for a job. And he just simply said, hey, by the way, uh, you know, one of my former students is here in the church. If any of you know of any job openings, uh, you, you know, please talk to them. At the moment, I was looking at a really, pro- I was on my like third interview, okay, with the prestigious Cheesecake Factory. Um, <laughs> Would I have been able to master that menu? Probably not. If I had made, been, been actually in the training process, you know what that menu looks like. But uh, that, that's where I was. And uh, this, this lady, just random lady in the church, comes up to me. And she has with her her friend named Jim. And Jim had just started working for this company called EE Wine. Uh, and I wasn't even 21 yet. So I was like, I don't know if, it, like, if I could even do that, like if they're selling wine. Well, that's, that's not what they did. They're an energy company in the area. And he was uh, leading out the uh, sales department of that, of that company. And he was looking for... For people to join. And so I started pursuing that and actually was hired by that company where, where I worked for seven years. So through that time, I finished up Bible college. They even helped me kind of be able to work a little bit part-time to be able to do seminary. Um, I could talk about all kinds of significant things that happened in my life during that time, but that company actually was instrumental in the planting of this church, the way they gave to this church, the way they kind of allowed me to have one foot in the company, one foot in kind of the church planting world for a season. Incredibly monumental moment where I was introduced to this person that I thought would just be a quick job to get through college that now is still having effects in my life. Now, by the way, also in that introduction was a young woman named Chelsea Pollock, uh, who is now Chelsea Klotz, my beautiful wife, and the mother of my four children. So in this one introduction, uh, my vocation, my career life, uh, my family, my children, all of that was kind of wrapped up in this single personal introduction. That introduction literally changed my life. Changed my life. But as important as that introduction was some 13 or 14 years ago, it pales in comparison to the introduction that John gives us this morning. Because John wants to introduce us to someone who can not only change our life, but the person that John introduces us John begins describing Jesus, and he says concerning Jesus, in him was life. And these introductory words that that John has for us concerning Jesus this morning, this is essentially what he is saying to us. This is Jesus. And whether you're in a place this morning where you trust in him or not, he has the life that every single person in this room longs for. And as we'll see as we work through this passage, I don't just mean like being a living organism. That's not what, what he's talking about. In Jesus, John says, is the life that every person in this room 
longs for, and he is introducing us to him. Now, speaking of introductions, let me just zoom out and consider some of the different ways or angles that the gospel writers introduce Jesus to us, because all of them have a bit of a different approach when Jesus steps on the scene. So, for example, with Mark, if you've ever read Mark's gospel, he's very fast-paced. He's almost like, we have no time for introductions. You'll figure out who Jesus is as we go along. Just step on board and, and watch. That's Mark's gospel. With Matthew's gospel, he's especially interested in showing us the Jewishness of Jesus. Immediately shows us the genealogy that brings it back all the way to Abraham, showing Jesus' connection to him and how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these many promises and prophecies that have been given uh, to, to the people of Israel. Luke has a little bit of a different angle. He's focused a bit more on the humanity of Jesus, some of the historical circumstances of how Jesus was born and what preceded it. Uh, but he ties Jesus all the way back to Adam. John, on the other hand, not so much focused on the Jewishness of Jesus, not so much focused on the humanity even of Jesus. What John wants to do this morning is introduce us to the divinity of Jesus. John wants us to see from this passage that this little tiny baby in the manger is nothing short of God's very own son. And as he introduces Jesus to us, let me just say one more thing. It's not just that he's telling us uh, this truth about Jesus' identity as God so we can have interesting theological discussion. He introduces Jesus to us, uh, his, his readers. If you still have your Bibles over, open, turn over with me to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 21. John chapter 20, Sorry, verse 31, verse 31. John, 30, John 20, 31, here we go. Why is John introducing us to Jesus? He says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and then here's his motive, here's his angle, here's why he wants you to know that Jesus is God's Son. So that by believing in him, you may have life, life in his name. John wants to introduce Jesus to us this morning, particularly the divinity of Jesus this morning, so that we can experience that true and abundant life that once again every person in this room is longing for. So what I want to do walking through the beginning part of John then is just ask some basic introductory questions. This is an introduction. John is introducing Jesus to us, and so as we engage in an introduction, there are some basic questions we ask to get to know someone. What do we begin with? We usually begin with this when we uh, want to get to know someone. Who are you and where are you from? Uh, basic questions that John is going to begin answering for us right here, and he begins with where Jesus is from. Uh, but John wants us to know, brothers and sisters, that Bethlehem is not Jesus's origin. That is where he entered into this world with human flesh on him, but that is not his origin. He says, in the beginning... It should call our memory back to uh, the book of Genesis, the same phrase when God describes the origin of the universe. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. So in contrast to Matthew and Luke, Matthew and Luke capture our imagination and they bring it back 2,000 years ago to a little manger in Bethlehem. 
But John, to fully understand who Jesus is, says that's not far enough. If you want to understand the the place where Jesus is from, you got to stretch your imagination back behind Bethlehem, behind all of Israel's history, behind all of human history, behind the creation of the world, behind the formation of the universe, behind one glimmer of light in the universe. you got to stretch your imagination all the way back to when there was nothing. And John says, that is where Jesus is from. He's from the beginning. He's from eternity past. That's where he's from, and then he's going to describe who he is. And what he does to describe who Jesus is is a, is a word for us, the word is word, uh, that maybe just seems ambu- ambiguous or vague to us, but it would have had some weighty significance to both the Jewish readers and the Greek or Gentile readers in his day. So he says, in the beginning was the word, and we immediately see later in the chapter that the word is in reference to Jesus. But as soon as John says word, all of the Jewish readers' minds are, are brought up into a very significant theme in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, this phrase, God's word, the the, the word of the Lord, is far more than just God uttering something. And it's actually shrouded in a little bit of mystery because uh, the the word is, yes, proceeding from God's mouth, but but it, it seems to almost take on an identity of its own. So, for example, in creation, it's God's word that is the agent that's involved in creating and forming things. When God wants to communicate something to his people, he doesn't just say, you know, the prophet spoke God's word. It says the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. At times, God's uh, word is, is a, like an agent sent for his word this way. It says he sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from destruction. So in the Old Testament, God's word has saving power. But it's not quite understood what exactly, it's more than just syllables coming from God's mouth, but, but we don't quite understand what it is. What, what John is saying is that the word of the Lord that we've become somewhat acquainted to but is still mysterious in the Old Testament is personal. It's a, it's a real living person. That's how Jews would have thought of it. Now let me just quickly zoom out and talk about how Greeks would have heard this, this word. The, the Greek word would have been logos. And the uh, predominant philosophy in many parts of the Greek world during that day were, was called Stoicism. And what Stoicism was trying to do is sort of make sense of, of the world. And so Greeks in that day would look at the world and say, there is a degree of order, or you could say rationality to this. When they would look up at like sort of uh, various star formations and see a certain pattern or rhythm, or, or when they would look even at like organisms and see the, the way that everything was ordered and kind of made sense, they, they would look at all of this. There's an order to the universe, but how do we account for it? They didn't think that it was like a personal God, but they used this, this word logos to describe the, the rational order that holds all of this together. The thing that makes the universe intelligible and understandable, it is the logos, the word. But, but also with them, they didn't understand this logos to be personal. What John is doing here is taking the mystery for both Jews and this philosophical idea of the logos in the Greek world and saying uh, the, the reason for the universe, the, the one who is the reason for its very creation is a person. That person is Jesus. The word creates, carries out God's purposes. The word expresses God's character. It's a person. 
And the word uh, is the thing that explains the purpose and the meaning of the universe. And we especially see the personality of the word in the uh, description of what comes next. So it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. It says that the word was in the beginning God, or a different type of, immediately we see that the word is not just a form of God, or a different type of expression of God, but a person that is distinct from God. And lest we think that the word is somehow less than God, immediately after John says that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, but lest we would be tempted to think that the word is somehow something less than God, he immediately says, and the word was God. And I know this is probably a little bit mind-bending, but any time we are stepping into the reality of who God is, prepare your mind to be a little bit perplexed. If you could immediately just kind of quickly figure out who God is, that would be not a God worth worship. He's bigger than you. He's more marvelous than you could ever understand. Uh, and so there is some mystery here, but, but this, is, this is what John is saying. He is the eternal word. Jesus is the eternal word. He is from before the beginning of time. He is distinct from God. He's his own person, and yet he also is God. Uh, you could put it like this. The word is a person distinct from God, but all that God is, the word God is also. And I say that one more time? What John is saying here by saying the word was God, all that God is, the word is also. The church council later would describe it as uh, the following terms, that, that Jesus, the eternal word, the eternal son, is the same in essence with God. Whatever makes God, God, he's the same in essence, but distinct in person. So big introductory question. Jesus, where are you from? From the very beginning. And who are you? Well, on the one hand, you are distinct from God the Father. You are your own person, but in a very another sense, you are also that's who he is. Let's shift this to this next question. What does he do? That's sort of how our conversations go, especially in this area. Well, who are you? Where are you from? Uh, well, tell me a little about what you do or what you're interested in and what your hobbies are, or what your vocation is. That's what John does here in verse three. So uh, he says, first of all, let's read verse one one more time. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Here's what he does. Or we could perhaps uh, tighten that up and say what he did. All things were made through him. And if that wasn't clear enough, he says it once again. And without him was not anything made that was made. So what does Jesus do? Well, John will get into what he does kind of presently in a moment. But what he first wants to focus on is what he did do way back at the beginning. What did he do? He created everything. So we just moved from eternity past, the, the beginning of time, and then everything that follows. And what John just told us is that Jesus is the reason that there is anything at all. He created all of it. What we say this year, you know, as, as Christians, especially culturally, he's the reason for the season. That's true. But John says, zoom out. Don't just say he's the reason for the season. He's the reason for everything. 
Everything was created through him. And and the word created here doesn't even fully capture the weight. You could maybe even say the philosophical weight of what John is communicating here. So to kind of understand it plainly, the ESV says that by him all things were created. But if we look more closely, what it would say is uh, by him all things came into existence. That's the weight of what John is saying here. He doesn't just say that he created everything, but all things came into existence through him. And without him, nothing that has come into existence would have come into existence. What what John is really doing for us here is answering probably, if you really think about it, the most complicated philosophical question ever asked. And that question is this. Maybe you've thought of it late in in your bed late at night one night. Why is there not nothing? We have come to understand, especially through modern science and philosophy, it clearly shows that the universe is not eternal. The, the, the space, the time, the, the material of the universe is not eternal. It came into existence at some point. The, the question that we have to wrestle with is why? Why did the universe come into existence? You may say, well, the, the Big Bang caused it. Yes, of course, but what caused all of that? Why is there anything at all. And what this brings us to, I know we're a little bit in the realm of philosophy here, but I I think this is helpful for us to understand because a lot of times people interpret Christianity as just like closing your mind to reason and just trying to believe. Almost like you really try as a kid, as you have some question marks about Santa, well, let me really try to believe. Like that's what we're doing. That is not the kind of faith the Bible's talking about. The, The kind of faith the Bible is talking about gives good reasons for us to believe what we believe. And so what John is introducing us to here, a, a reason for belief is this. It's uh, termed by um, uh, philosophers or uh, people who argue for the existence of God uh, as the cosmological argument for God's existence. I'm gonna unpack it for us this morning. Are you ready? Just hang in there for a second. Follow me on these points. Here's the cosmological argument. Everything that came into existence has a cause. That's the first point. Everything that came into existence has a cause. The universe came into existence. Therefore, the universe must have a cause. Both philosophically, scientifically understood. The universe at one point came into existence. It hasn't been there always. It came into existence, so therefore it must have a cause. Now, just to take this argument a little bit further, it goes like this. Part of the universe... Or what the universe is made up of is space, time, and material. So the cause and material, the the cause of the universe has to be greater than or transcend the universe itself. So the cause of the universe must be spaceless, timeless, and immaterial. If we were to ask the apostle John, hey John, what's that spaceless, timeless, immaterial that caused the entire universe? He'd say it was the word. The eternal word of God. He caused all of it. He is the uncaused cause, the, the one that caused the universe to come into existence. Now, uh, some of the best and brightest thinkers of our time, they generally are freshmen on college campuses. They, they will respond to that as, oh, hold on a second, hold on a second. You're just moving back the conundrum a little bit further because you're saying that, you know, God uh, brought everything, uh, you know, created everything and caused everything that came into existence. Uh, what created God? What, what caused him to, to come into existence? But that misses the, the very premise of the argument. What is the premise of the argument? Everything that came into existence has a cause. What we're saying here is that God is the one that has never come into existence. That's what John is saying. 
In the beginning was the word. He is the one who, who needs no cause. He always has been. And, and I think we could boil it down to this. If we're wrestling with the existence of, of, of God, something has to be eternal. Something has to be eternal. Either space, time, uh, and matter are somehow eternal. They've always been, but as we've seen, even modern scientists know that that's not the case. That had to have come into existence at some point. So, so what is it? What is it that, that, that is eternal? What John is saying here is that it's the word. The, the, the best answer to something that is timeless, spaceless, and immaterial is God himself. So back, back to our question, away from sort of some of these arguments to the core of what we're saying. Uh, so far, what have we discovered about Jesus? Who is he? He's God. He, he was there in the beginning, but yet he is distinct from the Father. He is his own person, and yet he is also molecularly divine. What did he do? He caused every single molecule in this universe to come into existence. And then I want to just kind of wrap it up then by focusing the rest of our time on this last question. Why? Why? That's another big conundrum, right? Like we're saying, did he do it? There's a, there's a general answer to that question. Psalm 19.1, for example, says the following. The heavens declare the glory of God. Why did God create everything? God created the universe to take all of his splendor, all of his majesty, all of his beauty, all of his power, and to declare it across the universe. That's why he created everything. And that's what we do when we truly have something that's incredible, something that truly has splendor to it. We want to express it. That's what God did. He took all of his brilliance and he declares it across the universe. That's a general answer to why God created everything. He wanted it to be glorified. He wanted to share his glory across the universe. But I want to get more specific and ask this question. Why did he create us? Because similar to the Genesis account, what happens in this opening passage in John is there's this description of God creating everything with sort of this big picture description, but then it focuses the attention on humanity. So uh, in the Genesis account, you've got, you know, kind of a quick running through the creation of all the stars, planets, all of the, you know, life forms on the planet, and then it gives special attention to Adam and Eve. Similarly with John, it says that all things were made through him, but immediately he starts talking about you and I. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Why did the eternal word create you and I. Yes, we are a part of that display of God's glory, but more specifically, what was his intention in creating us? Let me give you a really bad answer first, okay? Why did God create you and I? Well, eternity is a long time, isn't it? And, you know, I, that's a long time to spend alone, so God was alone throughout all eternity. He was, he was a little bit lonely. He had no one to kind of be in communion with or friendship with. And so he created people so he wasn't lonely. Did anyone hear that in Sunday school growing up? I'm glad if you didn't. If you did, take it and throw it away. <laughs> throw that one away. A uh, couple reasons why that's not the case. First of all, if God created humans out of need, then that would be describing to God something other than self-sufficiency. That would mean that the God of the universe has a need, so he created in order to fill that need. But I love how one Christian rap artist put it, to speak of God in need would be absurd because as Tozer said, need is a creature word. 
Need is something you and I understand. Need is something that we experience. God has no needs. He is self-sufficient in and of himself. So that's one reason why uh, he didn't create us out of loneliness, out of filling some need. Uh, But more importantly, that does not accurately describe the scene that we just read, that God was somehow lonely. The opening pages of John do not describe, describe God as lonely, needing companionship, com- companionship, it actually describes the most intense form of love and companionship ever described. So right here it says, first of all, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. That phrase with could be a preposition that just means alongside of, but it can also mean facing. And I think what John intends to communicate here is that in the beginning was the eternal son and the father facing one another. And he, in, in, in that first verse, just wants to reemphasize it. He says the word was with God. He was uh, in the beginning with God. He says it twice. There's a relationship that's happening here. And the other reason why I think this is explaining the intense relationship that existed between the Father and the Son has to do with the way this passage is structured. Okay, I don't have time to go into all of this, but in biblical literature, there's this thing called a chiasm, which is basically a way where one part of the passage corresponds with a part of the passage later on. In this passage, Greek scholars have observed that verse one that describes the word being with God corresponds with verse 18 that says, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. Can I tell you how else that word side could be translated? Who is at the, here? he begins by saying the word was with God and the word was held in God's heart. And as we read later in John, we, we read more about that kind of communion, that kind of fellowship, that kind of intense love and companionship that existed between the Father and the Son throughout all eternity. So simple answer, God did not create us because he was lonely. There was intense love between the Father and the Son throughout all eternity, so why did he create us? I think uh, a little bit later here, In verse 16, it it describes it quite well. It says in verse 16, this is beautiful. From his fullness, so God had no lack. He didn't have any need. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. What is grace? Grace is an unearned gift. It's a gift that God gives you that you did not earn. So what we could say of this is that from God's fullness of life and love and companionship that existed between the Father and the Son throughout all eternity, from that fullness, he created you and I to gift us with life. Life. He created us so that we might experience, like it says in verse four, life, and that life was the light of men. I wanna close the rest of our time, Then I know I've already said that once, but we're really gonna get there here. I wanna close the rest of our time considering this point. What does he mean by life here? So we're recognizing that the, the gift that's being given to us as humanity, that God simply because he, he wanted to share and be generous, he simply gives life. What is meant to be living organisms? having basic, the basic properties of biological life. I don't think that's what is in reference here for a couple of reasons. One, in the creation account in Genesis, it describes the, the formation of organic life in the first couple chapters, just animals and creatures that exist. But when it comes to humanity, how does it describe the creation of Adam? It says that God breathed the breath of life into him. So yes, Adam was a a living organism, just like all of the other animals were, but there's something different. 
There's something about the nature or the quality of life that he received that's unique. I think the same thing is happening here. When John describes uh, in Jesus being life, he's not merely describing a living organism. And, And I think there's an innate understanding that we have that there's a type of life that we can live that is distinct from merely being alive. Some of you, perhaps this morning, find yourself at church being even just barely, merely alive, like like you're alive. But but there's phrases we use sometimes that go something like this. Oh man, that, that, uh, that new job has just breathed life into him. Oh, when I get out into nature by myself, that's such a life-giving experience. What are we saying there? We don't mean that we like came to life. We, we mean we've, we've entered into a level of living, a, a quality of life that's, that's distinct. Um, that is the type of life that I think John is talking about here. And while I don't have a clear definition to say, hey, the life that John is talking about is this, I want to give you a few characteristics of the quality of life, the type of life that Jesus gives us as humans. So let me just give you a few examples throughout the rest of the Gospel of John where this word life is used. There's a bunch of others. Let me just give a few. First of all, what, what, Jesus, what do you mean of the world? He gave his only son so that whoever believes in him should not merely be alive, but would have eternal life. What's one of the qualities of the kind of life that Jesus is talking about? It's eternal. It doesn't uh, have an expiration date on it. It's forever. Just as Jesus is the eternal one who created everything, so is the life that is found in him. And this is important for us because the kinds of things that we often seek to give us that life-giving experience, like a vacation, uh, maybe a job, maybe a new purchase, they all have expiration dates to them. That we have this nagging awareness that even the things that give us life are temporary. They're not eternal. So one thirty-five, the life that's in Jesus is that it is eternal. How about this one? Jesus says in John six thirty-five, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It's a characteristic of the life in Jesus being truly satisfying. In other words, all, unlike all of the things that we look to to give us life, joy, significance, eventually their satisfaction begins to dwindle and it's not what we originally thought it was. The characteristic of the life in Jesus is that it is truly satisfying. And let me give one more characteristic of the life that's found in Jesus, John 17, 10. It's eternal, it's satisfying. And he says in John 17, 10, this is eternal life that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is Jesus describing there? He's saying that true life is lived relationally. When he says this is eternal life, that they may know God, that's not just us like having a theological discussion, learning facts about God. It's the kind of knowing that happens between best friends or between a husband and a wife. It's a relational love. And of course, we understand that, that for us to truly experience life, it would have to be in the context of a of relationship, right? Like, imagine this. Imagine this hell with me, if you will. It's like a Twilight Zone episode. Imagine you're given eternal life. You never have to worry about dying. You never have that nagging feeling that, that your life is going to one day end. Imagine being able to experience every single pleasure this world has to offer to the full. You get to experience all of it, no limits, Here's the only thing, you have to experience it alone. Who is signing up for that? 
Maybe if you're introverted, you're like, give me a couple weeks of that. That'd be awesome. But none of us would want to experience the joys of uh, the, the universe eternally alone. That's actually a horrifying thought. So so the kind of life that Jesus offers is in relationship. It's relational. And we see that life at the very beginning of creation. The father and son engaged in this relationship with each other. So back to our big question. Why did God create humanity? Why? But so that you could share in the life that is eternal, that is satisfying, and that comes through a relationship with him. The love between the Father and the Son from eternity past was so intense, he wanted to share it with people. And God is so full of this life that he gives us it as a gift to enjoy. And as we enjoy the life that is found only in the God of the universe, he's glorified in it. So let's do this then. What we need to do is sort of move from the clouds, right? And get a little bit more personal to our lives. Because we've had all kinds of theological, philosophical discussions this morning. Let's take it off of kind of that high shelf and put it onto our lives by simply asking this question this morning. Would you take a second just to think about it? In him was life, and that life was the light of men. Where are you looking for life this morning? All of us, Christian or not, are looking for more than mere existence. We're looking for life. We're on that quest for something that is eternal. It won't give up on us. It won't quit. Something that's truly satisfying. Uh, Something in the context of relationship. Where are you looking for life this morning? What is it for you? Is it career-related? Like, if I just make this move in my career, that is the place where I will come alive? Is it your sex life? That somehow in that, if it pans out the way you want it, you will come alive in the way you think you will? Is it simple things like perfecting the holidays this year somehow? Is that going to give your spouse but don't get? Will that give you the life that you're looking for? Is it just as simple as something you want to acquire, a purchase that you want? Is that going to give you the life that you are looking for? Where do you seek to find life? No matter who we are, we all want to connect ourselves to something that will give us the kind of life that Jesus is talking about this morning. And really, Advent, the season that we're in, is about reminding us to connect ourselves to the true source of life, Jesus. In him is the life we long for. Advent's about longing. The people of Israel longing, waiting, hoping for the promises that God had given them to come through. And we in our own lives are in a similar position of longing. Yes, we can look back at the arrival of Jesus and the salvation he provides, but we know we're not home yet. We're still longing. Advent's about reminding us while we wait for our permanent home eternally in God's uh, eternal satisfying presence, while we wait for that, there is life available to us here and now by connecting ourselves to Jesus. I'll give you this quick quote that I think is very helpful from Augustine, and it ties very well into this passage. Augustine, a theologian in the uh, 300s, says, between temporal, that means temporary things, between temporal and eternal things, there is a this difference. 
A temporal thing is loved more before we have it, whose true and certain rest is eternity. But the eternal is more ardently loved when it is acquired than when it was merely desired. Do you hear what Augustine is saying here and how it ties to this passage? The things that we look for in life that are temporal, that are of this world, we have this grand idea of how satisfying they'll be before we have them. And then we get them, our satisfaction in that thing goes down. Where on the other hand, the eternal, when you acquire it, your satisfaction and delight in it only exceeds, only increases. So where are you looking for life this morning? John says, life is found in the eternal one, the word who is from the beginning. He has come to offer us true, satisfying, and eternal life. And it's found by being invited into the intense love that has existed between the Father and the Son forever. So just a quick encouragement for you this morning as this holiday season crowds in on you and your attention is pulled in a hundred directions and all kinds of promises and offers of joy and life and happiness are before you. Can I just encourage you to shut yourself away at some point, maybe repetitively a few times during this holiday season and just go to the true source of life? Shut yourself away, open your Bible, turn some worship music on, begin to pray and seek out the one that offers the life that you truly long for and that nothing in this world can give. And as we come to communion this morning, we we are reminded that true life, the kind of life that's described here, has been given to us through Jesus surrendering his life for you and I. Here's the problem about life. At the beginning, it was just an unearned gift. God chose to just give it to us freely, and we as humanity were able to live purely because of just God uh, sharing his life with us. Now, in order for us to experience the kind of life that's described in this passage, it's not free anymore. It comes at a cost. The heaviest cost, the greatest cost, the most significant cost ever paid. In order for you to have life, true life, like we described this morning, it came to you through the body and blood of the eternal word who took on human form to die as our substitute, to then stay in the grave for three days and then rise on the third. So that, like John said way back at the beginning, by believing in him and what he's done for us, we might have life in his name. If you're looking for life this morning, let me just begin, offer you, the the communion table is the place to begin. If you've put your faith in Jesus, come forward with these tangible elements. Someone, you know, uh, described it kind of like this, that uh, whole aspect to it. When when God communicates, love someone, but, but we give them a hug. There's a physical aspect to it. When, when God communicates his sacrifice, his love for us, he gives us something physical. He gives us these elements for us to tangibly take in the sacrifice that's been given for us to have life. So if you believe that Jesus is God's eternal son and that he gave his life for you, come forward and participate in communion. If you're not there yet, please don't come forward and take communion. If you're not in a place where you've put your faith in what Jesus has done, we do believe that this is just for Christians but I offer you the same thing that's offered to every person in this room, the life that is found in Jesus. John said earlier in the beginning of his gospel, at the end of his gospel when he describes all of this, he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
I'm gonna pray for all of us now, especially if you're not in a place to take communion yet. I wanna pray that you too might be in a place to believe like John describes here. Let's pray together. Lord, there is no life outside of you. We can exist and we can even have things almost like a sugar high that give us the sense of nutrition, the sense of life for a moment, but it quickly passes away. The true life that we long for is found in the eternal word. God's eternal son that created us and gave us the breath of life. And then when we had ruined the life you had given us, you came back to your creation. You became one of us. You took on all of our sin, all of the things that suck the life out of us and experienced forgiveness and true life. Oh, I think of the words, John 10, 10, the enemy came to steal and kill and destroy. Lord Jesus, you say to us this morning that you came and you are here now to give life and to give it abundantly. Lord, would your abundant life rest on us now as we take this tangible expression of your love, your sacrifice, and would it continue to rest on us as we sing and worship you in Jesus' name, amen.